0: focal point the INV imaging podcast i'm harriet your host and i'm joined by our clinical radiographer bethany
1: hello
0: This month we welcome Ian Elliott to the podcast. Ian is a human radiographer and first became involved in MRI in the late 1980s. He's worked exclusively in MRI since 1991 and following an extensive spell scanning human patients has helped pioneer the use of the technique in veterinary practice. Ian has been involved exclusively in veterinary MRI since 2000 and has scanned many thousands of cases during this time. He currently works for Burgess Diagnostics, providing MRI services to veterinary surgeons throughout the UK and Ireland. So, welcome to the podcast, Ian. Thank you. I know I've given a very brief overview of your incredible journey as a radiographer so far, but please tell us more about how your career into veterinary MRI started.
2: Yeah, I'm a technically, radiographer rather than radiologist. People always ask me what the difference is, and I think it's about 100 grand a year. <laughs> um, Sure is. Radiologists are far far better paid than we are. Um, Yeah, I started out uh, doing MRI, gosh, it must have been the late 1980s, um, probably before you were both born. Certainly you would still be in nappies, I would imagine. Um, That was at the medical school in Manchester. Um, Subsequently, um, Manchester Royal Infirmary had installed the first, I think it was the first NHS funded MRI scanner in the country Um, and that was a 0.5T GE system. Um, Scanners in the early days were all 0.5. The the one in the medical school was a 0.5T system but could only be ramped up to 0.26 Tesla uh, because the shielding was so appalling that it interfered with computers in the room upstairs. Distorted the, the, the uh, <laughs> computer screens. Um, so, yeah, things have moved on quite a quite a bit since then.
0: I know, it's, it's incredible um, now. I think in clinical research, they used, is it, seven Tesla MRIs compared to a, a point 0.5 back when you
2: started?
1: Oh, it's gone wild, yeah.
2: Uh, and that easy. was it. There was point, yeah. point 0.5 was as good as it got, basically. And
0: with regards to the, the image quality you got with a point 0.5 Tesla, I can imagine... Were you, it must have been quite grainy or were you dealing with a lot more artifacts than we do now, That now that the images, the machines are so much more advanced?
2: Yeah, back in the day we thought they were absolutely stunning um, <laughs> because, <laughs> it, because there was nothing to <laughs> compare them with. Um, if you were to go back and look at them now, it, it's. I suppose it's a bit like, um, I don't know whether you've seen any early pictures of CT scans, but the images were printed onto Polaroid uh, film. And you could actually l- literally count the pixels. Uh, you could you could see the little squares of the image. Uh, so that gives you an idea of how how things have moved on. Oh, um, MRI wasn't quite as bad as that at the time. But, uh, but yeah, the the big difference um, is in terms of speed. Um, back then we didn't have fast uh, fast spin echo or anything like that. We were limited to spin echo sequences. Um, I think it was something like 20 slices to do a human brain, uh, T2-weighted, took 17 minutes to scan. So you could literally go away and make a cup Crazy. of coffee and come back and the Crazy. machine was still chugging away. <laughs> yeah.
1: So like an average full brain, full study of a human would probably take up to an hour. Is that, is that correct?
2: Um, yeah, it, probably about half an hour because the they, they were because of the time constraints they limited the number of sequences they did um, so it, it's a it's a bit ironic really as as machines have become faster the exam times okay they're a bit quicker but they haven't become that much quicker simply because radiologists like to do more and more sequences of course,
1: yeah and that was that also to do with the heated element of the 0.5 tesla Compared to what we have now, with the heating quite is a, such a big issue to take into consideration as it is now.
2: Um, it, it wasn't too bad. The, the, only, the, the major difference was that we had two, uh, two cryogens. So instead of having liquid helium, you had liquid helium and liquid nitrogen. Right. So the helium was there to keep the magnet cold and the nitrogen was there to keep the helium cold. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Working together.
0: And what's changed over time that now we just use helium?
2: Purely helium, yeah, um, and helium is is becoming very scarce at the moment. It's a it's a limited resource, um, uh, and and it's a resource that's that's running out. Um, but we're not we're not going to run out next week or anything. But it, it is uh, it, it is on its way out. Um, so manufacturers are, are looking. Um, to find ways of conserving helium Uh, and Philips have come up with a a fantastic scanner um, over the last couple of years. Um, The ones Bethany and I used to use hold something like, I think it's 1200 litres of liquid helium surrounding the magnet. Uh, The new Philips scanners have 7 litres of helium, um, which is phenomenal. how these things maintain a 1.5 tesla magnet with seven liters of helium is just mind-bending it really is
1: yeah it's crazy just shows though the progression doesn't it it's uh it's crackers
2: indeed yeah
0: yeah is there an alternative when the helium runs out or are we just not crossing that bridge yet
1: <laughs> ignoring it till it happens <laughs>
2: i'm sure all the best brains are working on it but uh i, I i'm not aware of anything
1: yeah it's so unique helium isn't it and it it, it is it is unto itself such a such a unique thing that i can't you can't even imagine what would even be similar to helium really yeah in in the aspect of using mri anyway it's um oh it's a bit frightening it'd be interesting to do this podcast again in like another 10 years (laughs) and see where we're at again wouldn't it
2: it would be really interesting remember when we were talking about helium gosh
1: yeah, <laughs> back in the day.
0: <laughs> so, just taking it back a level for the simple minds such as me who don't deal with MR on a daily basis, um, is, can you give a brief overview of what MR is, and especially with spin sequences, um, and just tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yes, uh, <laughs> this is one of the great advantages of now working in the veterinary world. Um, it, Bethany will bear me out with this the number of times you would get a patient, a human patient, off the table and they would look at you and say, well, how does this work then? And you think, oh, my yeah. God, how can I explain this?
1: Switch your brain back on and think, oh, yeah. heck, how to explain this?
2: Fortunately, <laughs> the, uh, dogs and cats don't have such an inquiring mind as people. But um, <laughs> to put it as, as simply as possible, what we'll, we'll, we're looking specifically at hydrogen in clinical use. Um, there are other atoms that will process. Um, we, we choose hydrogen because basically the body is 70% water um, and, and a lot of other things that contain hydrogen, like fat. Um, so there's lots and lots of hydrogen in the in the body to begin with. Um, and it processes better than, than, than any other... Uh, Atom. Um, Essentially, what we're doing is that the the hydrogen proton has an uh, its own magnetic field around it. Um, By applying a radio frequency that's specific to hydrogen, we can we can flip that magnetic field um, through ninety or one hundred and eighty degrees, and then turn our radio frequency off and, and wait for it to return to normal. Um, we can collect what's referred to as an echo, um, which basically is is the the system reading the radio frequency coming back from the hydrogen in the body. Um, That would give us an idea of how much um, hydrogen a particular tissue has in it. Um, And then by asking the computer to, to work out where these... Uh, signals are coming from in the body, uh, it, it can then map out a picture basically, um, very very simple way of putting it but, uh, but yeah that, that, that's what it's all about and, and originally that was why um, you, MRI took so long, uh, it's still not as fast as CT but it It was because you were waiting for the hydrogen to to physically return to its original state. Um, The physicists, physicists being clever people that they are, have worked out ways of speeding the whole process up and uh, it's now a lot quicker.
0: And is there any differences in sequence uh, with regards to the size of the animal that you're scanning or is it all just a a general rule?
2: No, the the sequences apply... um, throughout, basically, from um, whatever um, you can fit in. I mean, from a size point of view, the, the, the maximum size is limited by the, the size of the bore of the magnet. Uh, so anything you can physically get in there, you can scan. Um, the sm- uh, At the opposite end of the spectrum, the, the smallest size um, is determined by I suppose how much hydrogen there is in, in the specimen really um and how good the, your coil system is at detecting the signal coming back obviously the smaller and smaller you get the less and less uh, amount of signal you you're returning so you get to a point where you're trying to achieve the impossible basically
1: yeah, it's like when they um, ask you to scan a chihuahua's carpus and you think, "How am I going to achieve this?" It just becomes so noisy, and it's it do it, like you said. It, in comparison, you could probably get quite a large patient in the scanner and get a signal, but it's the tiny ones that really throw the issue. Definitely,
2: there are there are um, you you were talking about um, high field systems that are used in research. Um, there are machines around that are they're very high, high field strength, sort of 9 tesla or thereabouts, but very, very small magnets. Um, so they're, they're usually used just for analysing um, specimens rather than imaging. Um, but I, I have heard of people imaging mice and that sort of stuff in these kind of research settings. Uh, but they're very, very specialised bits of kit.
0: And and when you're scanning such small animals, you just the loss of signal just means loss of picture. Is that, the, if I'm getting that right?
2: Yeah, as as Bethany said, you, you um you you have as well as detecting the signal coming from the patient, the the system will detect any signal coming from from anywhere. Um, so things like um, fluorescent light bulbs will will give off a radio frequency, mobile phones, that sort of thing. Um, So there's there's all kind of background radio frequencies. Um, Most of those are filtered out because the the scanner is contained in a radio frequency cage. Um, It's a bit like the opposite of X-rays. X-rays are lead lined to keep the X-rays in. Um, MRI has a copper Faraday cage to keep outside radio frequency out. but the whole system itself generates noise and, and, and um, spurious signal that you don't want um, and the smaller the patient gets the uh, smaller the signal coming from the patient but the background noise stays the same so your signal to noise ratio gets worse and worse and worse the smaller the, the patient is
0: God. and um... I know when we talk about C T we always have to consider the hazards of C T. Is there any with MRI? Or is it pretty safe regardless?
2: We say uh, that there are no known hazards <laughs> from MRI. Um I think that's a caveat because back in the day when when Röntgen discovered X rays, um he thought X rays were pretty safe. Um, and then you heard stories about the radiologists losing limbs and getting all sorts of dreadful diseases and uh, things. So, yeah, with, the, 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 with that caveat, we, we say that there are no known hazards from MRI. Um, there, there are hazards from the magnet itself um, because magnets being magnets, they tend to attract ferrous objects. Um, so if you walk into a MRI, environment with a pair of scissors in your pocket and they get ripped out and accelerated at 30 miles an hour towards the patient that's probably not a good mix.
0: I used to remember the party chick at vet school where you would be wearing steel toe cap boots and walk into the equine MRI and see how quickly your boot would stick to the machine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah the um And as well, Ian, I always remember it always being discussed that because MR is still relatively new technology, the the risk factor isn't, like you said, understood because it's not actually been around for as long as x-rays. So we don't necessarily understand it. Um, And in the NHS now, I know that if you are um, quite early um, pregnant, you're not technically supposed to go in the room. So that's, that's kind of, you yeah. don't know a risk associated with that's it. But right. I think the pre yeah. preempting ones, they don't actually let you work.
0: And with regards to when you are scanning animals uh, with an MR machine, what is it gold standard for? I know we automatically assume central nervous system, but I can imagine there's lots of other structures that it's, you know, superior to. Yeah,
2: you're right. It it, it used to be said that, um, that MRI was... Uh, good for soft tissue and C T was good for bone. Um clearly the soft tissues that you're interested in um mainly are, are the brain which is contained within a a bony box if you like, um, so very difficult to get to with other imaging modalities. Um and the spinal cord which is contained within a bony column. Um so MRI's always been fantastic for looking at the central nervous system um, but it, it's uh, certainly as speeds have increased it's become uh, uh, very useful in all kinds of soft tissue applications uh, looking at abdominal stuff, uh, um, adrenal tumors, uh, re- renal tumors, liver, um, if you've got the right equipment and you can get your sequence um, to the heart rate it's um it's very good for looking at um, cardiac uh conditions um, and given as I say the right sequences and the right equipment, you can actually produce moving pictures of the heart um, which we've um, a colleague of Bethany and mine uh, did on some pigs at um, Edinburgh University several years ago. Got rather nice beating beating hearts of pigs, which is quite interesting. Um, but certainly in in the human field, it seems that it's becoming very common in, uh, in looking at joints, um, knees in particular. Um, I think Bethany will bear me out that anybody who goes to an orthopedic surgeon with a pain in the knee just gets sent for an MRI scan. Just you know, there you go. Scan. Uh, it, it's probably having said that, it's, it, one of the one of the tools I've noticed that vets don't have in their armory that, that human medics do uh, is waiting lists, um, and it's amazing how many people are put on a waiting list for an MRI scan and get better while they're waiting for the scan.
0: Maybe um, the same would happen in veterinary. We're just too impatient.
2: <laughs> maybe, maybe. Uh, it would have been vets who are too impatient or owners that are too impatient. I couldn't but. say. But I think having said that, the vets tend to be a lot more discerning about what they, what they scan. Um, and you, also, of course, you, you, you don't get many dogs walking into your practice and saying, excuse me, I've, I've got a pain just here in my back or I've got a pain in my knee or whatever. Um, So you only know there's something wrong with the dog when there is something wrong with the dog, really.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Presentation is definitely much more accurate in veterinary than it is in humans. Um, I find, coming from the NHS background, that a patient would be admitted and they would have every imaging modality available. They'd have an x-ray followed by an ultrasound, followed by a CT, then a follow-up MR, and then a bit of fluoroscopy, if they fancied. So they would have this full tool, which is great, but actually, is it necessary? Um, And that's when, obviously, in veterinary, whenever they come in for imaging, it was, in my experience, they normally have a pathology. It's quite rare that there is nothing there. Um,
0: Well, I guess we have to really take it on a a cost basis as well, because it's so expensive Mm -hmm. to do these imaging modalities that we have to be pretty sure that we think we're going to find a lesion to uh, recommend it to the owner. So CT takes and slices. Does MRI do the same?
2: Yes, it does. Um, It's slightly different in that um, CT is is a a mechanical procedure, so the the x-ray tube and the detectors revolve around the patient. Um, So you're limited, really, in taking your sections in in the transverse plane. Um, You you can get a little bit creative and... and, uh, sit people in, in in CT scanners and do direct coronal sections through the pelvis and um, get people to stick their chin out and get direct coronals through the head and that sort of thing but generally speaking you're limited to doing uh, sections in the transverse plane. Um, modern CT uh, can produce such fine slices that you can get very very good Sagittal and and oblique planes by reconstructing them uh, afterwards using, you know, just basically asking the computer to produce the other sections. Um, MRI has the advantage that sections are are determined electronically, so it depends on where your magnetic field gradients are applied. Um, So you can actually take slices in any plane that you wish, or sagittal, dorsal transverse oblique planes um, the choice is limited I suppose,
1: yeah, and you can also do the reconstructions as well, even when you've got this data, but yeah, yeah. it's um it, I suppose you've got a bit more scope with Mr to actually image in that plane so you see it live so um yeah. yeah, um
0: I was wondering if you could tell us about a few interesting cases you've seen over the years, anything that springs to mind yeah
2: um. These things tend to to come out of the blue because normally, I I suppose 80% of the stuff we do is dogs. Um, um, And just to prove I'm no good at maths, the other 20% is cats. Uh, And then there's a few others. Um, we break that down to 19s and and 1s, if you like. But yeah, so it's, it's basically dogs. Dogs are the bread and butter. Cats follow considerably way behind. Uh, and then there are the, the other things that just pop up out of the blue. Like some some are very doable and some are just completely downright weird. Um, I remember what, once being asked if we could do functional MRI on chickens' brains. Um, what? <laughs> but, uh, this is really, funny. going back to what we were saying about size, even the size of a chicken's brain... You're really kind of pushing the limits of technology i am afraid I had to turn that one down um but I did want to get asked to whether we could scan a shark um I assumed that the shark was going to be deceased, but no no, they said it was alive and alive and swimming i could I said I could scan it, but how do you keep? with the damn thing alive once you've got it out of the water. Don't worry about that, they said. We can, we can sort that. So uh, when I, as soon as I mentioned the shark, most people would say, how do you anaesthetise a shark? Um, and My answer over the years has, has always been uh, very, very carefully. <laughs> but, no, it, it involved a, a, a massive tank of uh, aquarium water, a heater, some compressed air, and a garden pond pump. Um, a lot of plastic sheeting and some plastic tubing um, and essentially they used the pump to pump the water along the tubing to a rigid section which had side holes drilled in it this was shoved into the shark's mouth pumps turned on and the water flows across the gills uh, is collected in a, a plastic tray beneath the shark uh, and pumped out into the car park outside so um, you know they just keep continually pumping oxygenated water across the gills, which was interesting, to say the least.
0: How did this all fit in the MRI machine?
2: With great difficulty. (laughs) We had to bend the dorsal fin about as far as we could. Uh, uh, Fortunately, it was the the sort of tail end of the shark rather than the thoracic end of the shark that we were interested in. So we managed to get him in, or her in, I should say, uh, far enough um, to be able to complete the scan, but it, yeah, it was it was touch and go as to well whether we'd get her in.
0: And what was the final diagnosis of the shark?
2: She'd um, um, the the clinical indication was that she uh, had developed a, a kink in her tail overnight. Uh, one day she was absolutely fine, and the next day the aquarists noticed that she had a bend in her tail. Um, when we scanned her, we noticed that she'd actually. Dislocated two of the vertebral bodies in a spinal column. Um, and um, it, it had been noticed in, in sharks in the wild um, that they often had scoliosis. Um, and the theory is that, um, you know, when, when fish suddenly flip their tails to, to move quickly. Um, that they're, they're putting too much strain on the vertebral column, and they, they, the contraction, sudden contraction of the muscle, does actually dislocate the, the spinal column. And then over the years, this then develops into a scoliosis. Um, and we did actually scan this shark again four years later, uh, and and she had developed oh, it what, just like a scoliosis. Wow, It's
0: incredible! Incredible,
1: yeah. So incredible. And the images were were good, diagnostic. Could you have, if someone put the image in front of you and said, is this a shark, would you have gone, yes, yes, or would you have gone, actually, it looks like anything else? Um,
2: No, it it was very, very odd, because um, you'll know, looking at most mammals, that um, a lot of what we see on the image is fat, Um, and of course, fish, Contain oil, but they don't contain very much in the way of of fat per se. Um, So it looked like everything looked like we were doing scanning using fat sat sequences. There was no fat there. The T2s were really nice because they were very contrasty water and and cartilage. Um, But the T1s, to be frank, didn't look very exciting at all.
1: No, of course, yeah. Yeah, that will have been a struggle, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was certainly um, sufficient to to uh, to give us an answer. Um, and they did actually have a vet standing by to do spinal surgery if it was indicated. Wow! Um, but it didn't look like the spinal cord was damaged, and she was still swimming. Okay, so they decided just to leave her. And, uh, as I say, she, she lasted another four years after that,
0: Wow! So. That was going to be my next question. In that, did they perform any surgery? But glad to hear that they didn't have to. Oh,
2: yeah. But it was certainly being considered. Yeah.
0: It's it's incredible now what they are doing with exotics, um, anesthetizing them, and you know f- mm. performing a full diagnostic workup as if it was you know a dog or a cat or any other mammal.
2: It, indeed, yeah, I uh, once had occasion to to scan a giant panda, um, um, and in terms of diagnostic workup, we were we were formed part of a queue. Uh, they were orthopedic Specialists X-raying it. There were uh, there was a cardiologist there. There was a neurologist. Uh, you know, uh, once this poor animal was anesthetized, everybody descended and, um, <laughs> and did whatever they could before the anesthetic wore off. Uh, yeah, cool.
1: The um, size-wise, with a giant panda, what kind of kilograms were you working I
2: think, with? Um, if I remember right, it was around about eighty kilos. Uh,
1: Oh, so similar to a standard human then, really. So size-wise,
2: yeah. but huge claws, absolutely massive claws.
1: Yeah, you can't you can't imagine it, can you not? Know? But what what an incredible opportunity oh, to be so close to such you know an animal that you would never get an opportunity to be so close. To. It just must be overwhelming. Even
2: even the shark. I mean, you, you know, you don't get. Yeah. To, to, Well,
1: hopefully not. Unless you're swimming in in the open (laughs) sea, and then you want to avoid it if you can.
2: (laughs) Yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, so amazing!
2: Yeah.
0: And with your panda, what were they looking to investigate?
2: Um, The the well, again, I I scanned the panda twice over the years. Um, The first instance, um, he was falling out of his tree. Uh, quite literally, um, and they weren't sure whether this was an orthopaedic issue or whether it was a, a neurological issue, uh, it, it could have been a, a cardiac origin, um, hence the queue of people waiting to descend on the pure propane. Um and the second time he uh, they, they knew that he had a testicular uh, cancer. Um, so they wanted to know whether um, whether both both testicles were affected whether there was any spread into the pelvis and that sort of thing so um, so that was a little bit more straightforward
0: and i can imagine mri is far more sensitive than using something like ultrasound for example
2: they they had um believe it or not done a conscious ultrasound on on this I, I, it's
0: probably very well trained. <laughs> I
2: thought it best not to ask why and how, but um, yeah. They, uh, so they, they knew that um, certainly one of the testicles was uh, involved. Um, the MRI gave them the the ability to look to look for pelvic spread and, uh, and look at the other the testicle more. Yeah, detail.
1: without using ionizing radiation, and I, I don't actually know what's the lifespan of a panda because obviously. CT would have potentially been an option, but to act, to irradiate such, you know, it's like a human, isn't it? And to yeah. give it such a large dose, being able to use the MR and having that available to them is is good, isn't it? It's really, really good.
2: Yeah, and and of course, the other thing was that they, they were quite keen to uh, to take semen from him before uh, castrating him. Yeah, of him, course. As um, part of the breeding programme. Yeah. Program, so, um, I- again, irradiating, you know, and then taking a sample would probably not... yeah counterintuitive. Be yeah.
0: No, absolutely. Wow, that is just so incredible. I hope that you know my career takes me along that path at some point. But uh, I think I'll be sticking to dogs and cats for a while. Occasionally, occasionally I get like the odd exotic rabbit coming through the door, but nothing like a panda or a shark. I will stick to diving, and that's the closest that I ever get. Mm-hmm.
2: The only other very very weird thing I got asked to scan um, was when we were um, we used to provide a mobile service to the vet school in Edinburgh, um, and next door to the um, vet school, I don't know whether you know the campus, but um, next door is a, is a, an establishment as part of the Forestry Commission, I believe, called the uh, Forest Research Centre, um, and they had spotted the mobile in the car park. Um and asked me if I would could scan some trees <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> right again, it's one of these things that makes you go, hmm, could i well, i well, was
0: this was not actually, what I was expecting
2: well, what, when they when they said trees, it turns out what they meant was logs, so these were actually, oh. they were actually thrown up into logs um and it what what they wanted to do. Um, I, I this had never entered my mind ever before um but apparently it's it's quite crucial in, in the in the timber industry to know how 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 wet logs are and how how, how they dry out this oh. was a topic of their research um because obviously if you're transporting timber over long distances and they contain a lot of water that they don't need to contain um there's implications for fuel and, and the environment, etc., etc. Cetera, et cetera. Um, so they wanted to scan these um, these logs to see how much um, water was contained within the uh, the rings in the timber. Um, and if you haven't done it before, if you if you stick a log in an MRI scan and scan it, you can see the the, the growth rings.
1: Uh, oh wow, you, uh, that's incredible!
2: Uh, uh, if you use T2 standard T2 sequence, uh, the growth rings stand out really, really well.
0: Oh, incredible! And you just see there was concentric rings. Concentric
2: rings, yeah. Oh
0: wow, that's it! And could you tell? Was there a lot of water within the logs or?
2: I I couldn't because <laughs> um, I suppose when you're an expert. Um, you know these things
0: nothing to compare it to i suppose have
1: you it's not like you've been scanning logs your whole life
2: (laughs) and one log is much like another
0: (laughs) at least they'd never have any complaints So that's all i could say
2: yeah Yeah, Yeah,
1: anesthetic must have been
2: straightforward it's very straightforward
1: yeah (laughs) no issues no issues at all literally Um,
2: slipped like a log
1: (laughs) (laughs) um The only thing I wanted to ask you, if you know, if anyone, um, if any vets are listening and thinking, is MRI would it ever be useful for us? Do you think it should be part of our package? What would you, what would your advice be to them about looking into becoming an MR centre as well as a CT and an X ray? Do you think it, you know, what benefit would that have?
2: I think it's becoming more and more essential, <coughs> and this is to an extent driven by owners. Owners. Uh, and now very, very familiar with MRI. Pe- people going into a hospital know as much about MRI as they know about x-rays. You know, they, they, uh, they know they know MRI, they know ultrasound, they know all of these techniques. Um, and if they're available to them, they want them to be available to their animals. Um, and um, I'm thinking particularly in, in the case of myelography, Um, myelography in people is just not even considered now unless you are completely excluded from having an MRI scan because of pacemaker or or whatever Um, then myelography just isn't isn't done in people it's considered far too uh, archaic and and dangerous Um, but I know it's still um, fairly commonplace in veterinary practices Um, so yeah i mean uh, i think that is is the the single biggest area for looking at spinal spinal disease and uh, uh, disease of the cord um i i I know people use ct and ct myelography for looking for for disc disease um, but you still don't get that uh, idea of um what's going on in the spinal cord itself. Um, you may tell or, or estimate that the, the cord is compressed, but you, you can't see what, um, what damage is being done to the cord or whether, whether you're looking at, perhaps, cord tumour rather than compression. Um, so, yeah, MRI is, is the gold standard, certainly for looking at brain and spine.
0: Absolutely. I'd give yeah. it five to 10 years. I think five years ago in general practice, being a CT in a in a you know a small animal hospital was really unheard of unless there were a referral centre. Now it seems to be every kind of tier three hospital is incorporating a CT, and I think as more vets you know we're getting surgeons within the hospitals, we get you know neurologists working. I think MRI will slowly start creeping in, and uh, will be more established in far more hospitals.
2: Yeah, uh, it certainly is. I mean, all of the all of the referral practices, most of the the, the um... Medical the the vet schools have, have if they haven't got c t they've got access to uh, uh, MRI they've got access to MRI um, when I first got involved in veterinary MRI um, I think there was Ruth Dennis down at the Animal Health Trust who'd um, been doing MRI for a while, but that was about it really um, you know there weren't there weren't the number of scanners around then that there are now yeah,
1: definitely exciting times especially for us veterinary radiographers it's all it's all it's all progressing definitely isn't it yeah indeed
0: Well, wow. uh, that's been a really interesting chat um it appears that all the best radiographers diverse into veterinary um i'd just like to say a huge thank you to ian for joining us on the podcast honestly it's been great to have you um we'll be back next month for another episode of focal point until then please take a look at our social media platforms for lots more great imaging content so it's a goodbye from all of
2: us bye. Bye. bye